This is episode 115 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, Creative Work Done in Quarantine. This episode is part of our near daily or daily series during the pandemic. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I thought it would be fun to talk today about artistic works that have been produced during quarantine or other examples of productivity during quarantine. Uh, But I hasten to say that I refer back to the episode in which Alex Pang joined us to talk about productivity during a pandemic. He did talk about some things that can help us be more productive, morning routines and periods of intense work broken up by something, a walk or, or some other kind of way to recharge our brain. And so I don't want this to sound like, okay, yeah, everybody's at home. You're all working from home. You're homeschooling your children and you're cooking all your meals at home. And oh, on top of that, you should write the great American novel while you're there. So now I definitely don't want to add to anybody's pressure to produce even more during a crisis. I think as somebody said, it's not that you're working from home, it's that you're trying to work from home during a health crisis. So yeah, two pretty different things. So not to put any pressure on anybody, but I did think it would be interesting to take a look at what other people have done while they were quarantined. And we, of course, have some really interesting examples in history because there have been As we talked about last week with our history of pandemics and epidemics, particularly with the bubonic plague, so many cases where people were sequestered for long periods of time. And probably the most famous example is Isaac Newton. And I think Alex Pang uh, talked about that also in the episode where he joined us. And he said, you know, Isaac Newton was just a freak anyway. He was just an extraordinary person capable of of working for extremely long periods of time. So we just can't compare ourselves to him. But in 1665, when he was in his early 20s, the bubonic plague did break out while he was in England. And classes at Cambridge, where he attended, were canceled. Sounds familiar. And so he went off to his family estate about 60 miles away, very uh, remote, beautiful area in the countryside. And again, that's a little bit different than being locked down in your normal house and everything is shut around you with constant invasion of news. I mean, I'm just really struck by how his situation could have really been very conducive to great productivity. You know, he didn't have to worry about emails or Zoom uh, meetings and all kinds of things. And uh, he did, in fact, excel during that period of time. He produced some of his best work uh, during that year in quarantine. He wrote papers that would ultimately become the basis for calculus and also 
wrote a lot about optics and discovered a lot of things about working with prisms while he was in there. It's also the period of time when his theory of gravity began. And although, you know, we have this picture of the apple falling from the tree and hitting him on the head, uh, it's not clear that that ever happened, but uh, there is an indication that there was actually an apple tree uh, fairly close to his house. So perhaps he was thinking about apples falling. Another person who was very productive during a quarantine was Florentine writer and poet Giovanni Boccaccio. And uh, sadly, uh, he was living in Florence in 1348. They had an outbreak of the bubonic plague, which actually killed his father and stepmother. And he fled the city and hid out in the Tuscan countryside, uh, where he wrote the Decameron, which is a collection of novellas framed as stories a group of friends tell each other while they're quarantined inside a villa during the plague. And it begins with a description of the plague. I'll read some of it here for you. In the year then of our Lord, 1348, there happened at Florence, the finest city in all Italy, a most terrible plague, which whether owing to the influence of the planets or that it was sent from God as a just punishment for our sins, had broken out some years before in the Levant, and after passing from place to place and making incredible havoc all the way, had now reached the West." There, in spite of all the means that art and human foresight could suggest, such as keeping the city clear from filth, the exclusion of all suspected persons, and the publication of copious instructions for the preservation of health, and notwithstanding manifold supplications offered to God in processions and otherwise, it began to show itself in the spring of the aforesaid year in a sad and wonderful manner. There's then a description of the symptoms of the disease, which I will spare because it it really is, it's too much to take right now in in these days. Uh, So after he describes how it develops and shows itself, he continues, To the cure of this malady, neither medical knowledge nor the power of drugs was of any effect, whether because the disease was in its own nature mortal, or that the physicians, the number of whom taking quacks and women pretenders into the account was grown very great, could form no just idea of the cause, nor consequently devise a true method of cure. Whichever was the reason, few escaped, but nearly all died the third day from the first appearance of the symptoms, some sooner, some later, without any fever or accessory symptoms." What gave the more virulence to this plague was that by being communicated from the sick to the healthy, it spread daily, like fire when it comes in contact with large masses of combustibles. Nor was it caught only by conversing with or coming near the sick, but even by touching their clothes or anything that they had before touched. These facts and others of the like sort occasion various fears and devices amongst those who survived, all tending to the same uncharitable and cruel end, which was to avoid the sick and everything that had been near them, expecting by that means to save themselves, and some holding it best to live temperately and to avoid excesses of all kinds, made parties and shut themselves up from the rest of the world, eating and drinking moderately of the best and diverting themselves with music and such other entertainments as they might have within doors." never listening to anything from without to make themselves uneasy. 
Others maintained free living to be a better preservative and would balk no passion or appetite they wished to gratify, drinking and reveling incessantly from tavern to tavern or in private houses, which were frequently found deserted by the owners and therefore common to everyone, yet strenuously avoiding with all this brutal indulgence to come near the infected, and such at that time was the public distress that the laws, human and divine, were no more regarded." for the officers to put them in force, being either dead, sick, or in want of persons to assist them, everyone did just as he pleased. A third sort of person chose a method between these two, not confining themselves to rules of diet like the former, and yet avoiding the intemperance of the latter, but eating and drinking what their appetites required. They walked everywhere with fragrances and nose coverings, for the whole atmosphere seemed to them tainted with the stench of dead bodies." arising partly from the distemper itself and partly from the fermenting of the medicines within them. Others with less humanity, but with more security from danger, decided that the only remedy for the pestilence was to avoid it. Persuaded, therefore, of this and taking care for themselves only, men and women in great numbers left the city, their houses, relations, and effects, and fled into the country, as if the wrath of God had been restrained to visit only those within the walls of the city. He goes on to talk about how difficult it was to care for the sick and how few people there were to care for the sick and how terrifying it must have been. And we know that during that time, two-thirds of the population of Florence was killed. So he ends with, What can I say more if I return to the city? unless that such was the cruelty of heaven and perhaps of men, that between March and July following, according to authentic reckonings, upwards of a hundred thousand souls perished in the city only, whereas before that calamity it was not supposed to have contained so many inhabitants. What magnificent dwellings, what noble palaces were then depopulated to the last inhabitant, what families became extinct, what riches and vast possessions were left, and no known heir to inherit them. What numbers of both sexes in the prime and vigor of youth breakfast in the morning with their living friends and supped at night with their departed friends in the other world. Here's another artist who was quarantined during the Spanish flu pandemic, and he's the painter of the painting Scream, Edward Munch, the Scream, you've probably seen that painting. He'd actually already painted that before he went into quarantine. And that uh, painting is very amusing because I sometimes see it used also as an emoji, which I think is so uh, characteristic of our modern life. And when he was in quarantine for the pandemic, he actually contracted the disease while he was living in Norway. But he uh, continued to work once he recovered enough to begin painting again. And he captured his physical state within a painting called Self-Portrait with the Spanish Flu that shows him uh, sitting near his bed with uh, kind of a gaunt face and not looking particularly well. And this brings us to Thomas Nash, who was an Elizabethan playwright, uh, contemporary with William Shakespeare, which we'll talk more about in a minute. And when the bubonic plague hit London in 1592, he also fled to the countryside to avoid infection. And while he was there, he wrote a play uh, called Summer's Last Will and Testament, and it has a very famous passage in it that I'll read for you. 
Adieu, farewell earth's bliss. This world uncertain is. Fond are life's lustful joys. Death proves them all but toys. None from his darts can fly. I am sick. I must die. Lord, have mercy on us. So he sounds like kind of a uh, poetic type person, but actually he was quite a troublemaker. And I noticed in this picture of him in Wikipedia, he's actually wearing ankle cuffs that are then connected to a chain that he's holding in his hand. So of course, I had to go find out what that was all about. Nash had been a graduate of St. John's College in Cambridge, and then had moved to London to begin his literary career. And he only lived for 10 more years after that. He died at the age of uh, 33 or 34. But he was quite a troublemaker. He kept getting involved in all these crazy controversies. Uh, They had these various tracts that were circulating uh, that were against the church. And although Nash came down on the side of the bishops, he was also involved in all these kind of anti-establishment type works. Like he wrote this play called The Isle of Dogs, which was so controversial that it was instantly suppressed and that no copy of it exists. It was a major controversy and was never published. And in fact, Nash had already fled the city knowing that he was going to get in trouble, but his office was raided and his uh, papers were seized. He also wrote this thing called Christ's Tears Over Jerusalem, which was allegedly devotional, but it had some satirical material, which offended the London civic authorities, and so he was, in fact, briefly imprisoned. It does seem like he walked a line between satire and comedy, and he's described as having a style that is complex, witty, anecdotal, and peppered with newly minted words and Latin phrases. And his satire can be mockingly and bitingly sharp. And at times, his style seems to relish its own obscurity. I'll tell a little bit more about him. So he also engaged in writing some erotica. And I'm actually not going to read that to you because it is pretty explicit. But then he was criticized for that, uh, of prostituting his pen. And so he wrote uh, back to defend himself. It may and may not be so, but when the bottom of my purse is turned downward and my conduit of ink will no longer flow for want of reparations, I am fain to let my plow stand still in the midst of a furrow and follow some of these newfangled galliardos and senior fantasticos to whose amorous vianeyas and kipasas I prostitute my pen in hope of gain." And here's where the story gets even more interesting. So Nash is quite a bit older than Shakespeare, and when Shakespeare came to London as a young man, Nash collaborated with him and wrote the first part of Henry VI, uh, which was published later under Shakespeare's name as part of the Henry VI trilogy. So you know there's always these uh, suspicions about whether or not the plays that were all published under William Shakespeare's name were actually all written by him. So I want to, having studied this intimately now for about an hour, I'm going to suggest that, uh, that perhaps there was quite a bit of collaboration. And part of the conspiracy theory about Shakespeare involves another writer, Christopher Marlowe, 
And you do have to be a tiny bit crazy to think that Christopher Marlowe might have written those plays, because in order to do so, his death would have had to have been faked. He would have been have to whisked off to France or something, write the plays in secret and have them sent back to Shakespeare to be published under his name. The whole thing is pretty zany. But it does look as though there were groups of writers in London that were collaborating, including Christopher Marlowe. Uh, So that's my theory for today. Francis Bacon also is a contemporary writer who is sometimes mentioned as somebody who could have written Shakespeare. One of the reasons I like the idea of it being a collaboration or that these guys were all working together is because Shakespeare was incredibly prolific, right? And so there's an actor named Rye Lance, who's a stage actor, and he uh, believes these crazy ideas that it might have been a collaboration and believes that Francis Bacon was probably involved. And he says, you know, one of the reasons that he likes this idea is because he thinks that the notion of a single genius at work can be very damaging to the confidence of a younger playwright. So I like that idea as well. There was an American academic, James Shapiro, who wrote a book called 1599, A Year in the Life of William Shakespeare. It talks about this crazy year in which Shakespeare wrote Henry V, Julius Caesar, and As You Like It, and perhaps also completed the first draft of Hamlet. He wrote this book and put it out there, and then his intention was to write a new book that would be about 1605 or 1606, which is the year when William Shakespeare was quarantined. And that was the year that he uh, left London because all the theaters were closed. Uh, So he found himself without a steady job and lots of free time and allegedly composed King Lear, Macbeth, and Antony and Cleopatra before that year was over. So this is what you hear, right? William Shakespeare wrote King Lear in quarantine. In a counter-argument, Trevor Nunn, who's an expert in uh, Shakespearean issues, compared these conspiracy series to bonkers American speculations about the Apollo moonshot, uh, CIA involvement in 9-11, and landing of aliens. And he says the reason that these theories, conspiracy theories persist is because it's a long-standing English problem, basically one of snobbery. He says, to accept that someone from the lower orders, not formally educated at Oxford or Cambridge, could be a genius is very hard for us to accept. I want to give a shout out to a couple of other interesting things that are out there. There's an effort underway started by the Getty Museum to have people at home recreate works of art with everyday items. And I'll put this in the show notes, but it's just really charming what people are creating. And another thing that the artists are doing is they have a Corona Maison. It's a drawing collaboration, you might say, where people share what their quarantine house would look like once they're given kind of a relic to work with. So just a simple room and a window and a stairs. And again, I'll put it in the show notes, but it's just really interesting how inventive people are and and, uh, the work that they can produce. It's very inspiring. I'll close with a poem from Jessica Salfia. She's an English teacher and writer in West Virginia, and she posted a poem on Twitter that was the first lines of a lot of emails that she had been receiving. And I'll read that for you. 
It's called The First Lines of Emails I've Received While Quarantining. In these uncertain times, as we navigate the new normal, are you willing to share your ideas and solutions? As you know, many people are struggling. I know you are up against it, the digital landscape. We share your concerns. As you know, many people are struggling. We hope this note finds you and your family safe. We've never seen anything like this before. Here are 25 distance learning tips. As you know, many people are struggling. Feeling fiesta today? Happy Taco Tuesday. Calories don't count during a pandemic. Grocers report flour shortages as more people are baking than ever. As you know, many people are struggling. Count your blessings. Share your blessings. Get free curbside pickup or ship to your house. Chicken, lemon, artichokes. As you know, many people are struggling. How are you inspiring greatness today? We have a cure for your cabin fever. Pandemic dial-in town hall tonight. As you know, many people are struggling. Mother's Day looks a little different this year. You're invited to shop all jeans for 50% off. Yes, buy one, get one free. As you know, many people are struggling. Call us to discuss a loan extension without penalty. Act now. Tell Congress charters should not line their pockets during the COVID crisis. Now shipping face masks, as recommended by the CDC. As you know, many people are struggling. This is not normal. So there you have it, some works of art uh, during quarantine in the modern time and in the history. And I wish you all good efforts of productivity during this time yourself. That's it, everybody. You've made it through another episode of Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work. During the pandemic, we'll be changing our format in honor of those who are quarantined or working on the front lines. We'll put out shorter shows on a daily or near daily basis early in the morning to start your day on a positive and interesting note. We'll be considering work-related issues relevant while COVID-19 is impacting the world. If you have a question or a comment or a message for our listeners, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us through the website, discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-E, where you can also find other resources about working better together. Thank you for joining my quest to improve our workplaces, our work lives, and our lives in general. And thanks for listening. We look forward to returning to our old format when the world has returned to a more normal state. In the meantime, please hang in there, stay safe, and know that I care about you.